before our online service today, I want to have a moment for us to pause and hear from our new senior minister, the Reverend Dr. Eric Park. Eric will come now and introduce himself and say a few words of welcome to the Christ Church community. In his well-known Rubiat, the Persian polymath Omar Khayyam wrote these words, be happy for this moment, for this moment is your life. And I stand here today feeling in many ways that this moment, and by this moment I mean the beginning of our shared ministry here at Christ Church, I stand before you feeling that this moment has indeed become my life. And I think I feel that way for multiple reasons. I feel that way first because this moment actually began well over a year ago. In January of 2022, two bishops who are dear to my heart, Bishop Cynthia Moore-Kakoy in Western Pennsylvania and Bishop Thomas Bickerton here in New York, invited Tara and me into a season of discernment about a possible new pastoral appointment at some great church on the corner of Park Avenue and 60th in New York City. And so this moment feels like my life because it's a moment that has been taking shape for the last 13 months. But more importantly, this moment feels like my life because since January of 2022, our hearts have been connected to your hearts in ways that you don't, you probably don't realize. I say that because since January of 2022, we have been experiencing Christ Church's beautiful and multi-layered worship online. We've been receiving church communications. We've been learning about your history and your ministry. And most importantly, we have made it a priority to pray for this congregation and its staff and its ministry. And we've done that with gratitude and a sense of urgency. So to be even in the virtual presence of people for whom I've been praying for over a year feels joyfully surreal. Be happy for this moment, Omar Khayyam wrote, for this moment is your life. I stand before you today feeling as though this moment has indeed become my life and it generates an enlivening joy in my spirit to be able to say that. And so as I live into this moment that has become my life and as I do some inventory on the emotions that I'm carrying at present, it becomes increasingly clear to me that my emotional nucleus at, presence, at present is what I can only describe as a profound and almost overwhelming gratitude. And with your gracious permission, I'd like to give expression to at least a portion of that gratitude because it's very important to me. I want you to know the heart, the grateful heart of your incoming pastor. In the first place, I am incredibly grateful for Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman, whose 35 years of ministry in this great congregation bear witness to the visionary preaching and the stellar leadership and the um, comprehensive commitment to excellence for which Stephen has come to be known. I met Stephen for the first time probably a decade and a half ago at a United Methodist jurisdictional conference and immediately um, I had an appreciation for his leadership and his ministry, but over this last year, that appreciation has evolved into an authentic friendship as Stephen and I have engaged in um, extended and regular conversations in preparation for this transition. Somebody said to me recently when they found out that I was coming to Christ Church and following Stephen, wow, you sure do have big shoes to fill. And I chuckled out loud and I responded by saying, well, if footwear is your preferred imagery, let me put it to you this way. 
I feel as though I could take up residence in the back portion of one of Stephen's heels and have plenty of room left over in that single shoe for the rest of my relatives and all of their furniture. My point, friends, is that it is not at all my intention to fill Stephen's shoes as if anyone could do that. My intention is to wear my own shoes with as much integrity as I possibly can, and hopefully in a way that glorifies God and honors the beautiful legacy of ministry that Stephen has bequeathed. You need to know that Melissa and Stephen have both been exceedingly and sacrificially generous to Tara and to me during these days of transition. I am grateful for both of them, for our continuing friendship, and for the honor of following them here. And please understand that as you process the heavy emotions of saying goodbye and saying hello, know that I process those emotions with you. I carry them with you. I'm also incredibly grateful to the remarkable staff at Christ Church who have worked so beautifully over these last several years uh, in sustaining and even expanding this church's ministry, first during a time of pandemic recovery and more recently during a time of senior pastoral transition. I have been regularly stunned, and that's the right word for me to use, I have been regularly stunned by the staff's abundant giftedness, but I've also been stunned by their willingness to practice what I would describe as radical hospitality in every circumstance. I've experienced that hospitality up close and personally. And as grateful as I am for the entire staff, I do want to single out our church's administrator, Roseanne, who has gone way above and far beyond the call of duty to help us orchestrate our move to New York City, to prepare the parsonage for our arrival, and to ensure that we might have the best beginning here in this new pastoral appointment that we can possibly have. I am incredibly grateful to this church's remarkable staff and for the opportunity to work alongside them. And please know that I'm also incredibly grateful for this church's ministry teams. And I'm speaking specifically of the Staff Parish Relations Committee and the leadership team, the transition team, the trustees, all of whom were entrusted with the work of navigating a senior pastoral transition, the likes, of which, the likes of which this church has not seen for 35 years. And they've cared for that work with such skillfulness and such integrity. And please know this, I'm also grateful for the entirety of the Christchurch congregation for the way that you have prayed, for the way that you have endured long and sometimes murky months of transition and for the way that you have welcomed us already with this incredible food and your words of encouragement and your heartwarming hospitality. In case you were not able to tell, we are so excited to be here and we can't wait to spend more time with you, to hear your stories, and to allow the Holy Spirit to bring about deep and beautiful connections between our hearts and our journeys. One more word of gratitude, and I hope you'll understand why it's important for me to share it. I am incredibly grateful for a certain human resources professional who is also an exceptional musician and who also happens to be my wife of 31 years. To put it as simply as I can put it, Tara is my favorite person in the world. She is poetry to me in a world that often prefers prose and there is no sweeter place for me than by her side and in her heart and on her mind. I'm grateful for the honor of being Tara's husband and I can't wait for you to meet her. 
And I hope you have sensed that beneath all of these other expressions of gratitude, I am um, profoundly grateful to God by whose grace I'm saved, by whose love I am made whole, and whose redemptive work in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the church's foundation. And as we continue in this time of worship, my prayer is that we will allow ourselves to become so available to the transforming presence of God's Holy Spirit that our very lives will resonate as a song of praise. May it be so. Holy God, you gather the whole universe into your radiant presence. Let us prepare our hearts and minds for the word. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Almighty and merciful God, throughout all time you have blessed your people and dwelt among them. On the day of this new ministry, inspire and guide us so that all we do may find in you its beginning and fulfillment in your word. Amen. Israel complains that God has deprived them of justice. They may observe fast days, but are guilty of oppressing their workers and living in discord with their neighbors. The prophet supplies God's answer. Isaiah 58, 1 through 12. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble yourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with the, a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. 
Jesus was inviting his hearers into the possibility of being undone and embraced by a grand purpose. It was an invitation to become so inwardly occupied by the priorities of God that our very lives become flavorful and illuminating in a world that so often flirts with losing its spiritual flavor and its moral clarity. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Can you recall a time when you were so holistically captivated by a sense of purpose and direction that you couldn't think about anything else for a while? A moment when you were practically overwhelmed by a sense of urgency related to something that you felt you absolutely had to do. Those moments tend to happen in different seasons and with varying degrees of intensity. Case in point, here's a vivid memory. I was five years of age running around the house in a makeshift Batman costume, fighting crimes in the hallways of our three-story family home. My mother turned on the television set and onto the screen came an episode of Star Trek, already in syndication at that point, but I had never seen it before. And I remember sitting on the edge of the couch, mesmerized by what I was seeing. I felt as though I were being transported to another universe with interesting characters and intergalactic storylines. And the rhythms of my five-year-old brain, even though I did not have the vocabulary with which to express it, informed me that science fiction had to figure prominently in my future. It had to. It was no longer something optional. A year later, when I was six, I stood in the foyer of that very same home and listened to my older sister, Cindy, playing the notes and the chords of Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water on the family piano and quietly singing to herself. And in those seemingly ordinary moments, my six-year-old soul was ushered into the sheer profundity of what only music can generate. I knew I had to experience more of it. I had to. As a seven-year-old, I began to receive postcards from my older brother, David, from San Francisco, his new home, 
And as I studied those photographs and read his poetic descriptions, I remember thinking to myself as a seven-year-old, there is a world outside of Grove City, Pennsylvania, and I have to experience it. I must. I read Charles Dickens' novel, David Copperfield, for the first time when I was a freshman in college. And as I sank ever more deeply into the evocative artistry of Dickens' writing, I remember coming to the conclusion that it was important for me. No, that's not the right word. It was essential for me to study literature during my college years. I didn't know what my major was going to be prior to that. But after reading Dickens' David Copperfield, I knew I had purpose, I had direction in my study. In the springtime of 1987, at a Palm Sunday Vesper service at a British Methodist church in downtown London, I sat in the congregation as the pastor consecrated the bread and cup of the Lord's Supper. And suddenly I became very much aware of a mystical engagement that was taking place between my soul and the divine heart. And what I think, what I think I sensed God whispering to me in that moment was something like this. Eric, pay attention to what that pastor is doing. Pay attention. Look at her holding the bread. Look at her holding the cup. Listen to her words because that is what I want you to be doing for my church. And later that year, I sat in a snack bar on the campus of Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, in the middle of a conversation that I did not want to end. And in those moments, I remember looking into the face of Tara Rivetti and coming to the conclusion that I wanted to spend the rest of my life loving her and being loved by her. And to bring things to present day, just a few months ago, after a really lengthy time of discernment and a phone call from a bishop, Tara and I sat in the basement of our home in Western Pennsylvania and with tears in our eyes, we affirmed together that we could not wait to move to New York City and to become a part of the ministry of this incredible church. I'll ask the question again, can you recall a time in your life's journey when you were so holistically captivated by a sense of purpose and direction that you could not think of anything else for a while. That kind of experience can change the trajectory of one's life, can it not? And I'm asking you to consider those moments because as we open the pages of scripture today, we find Jesus inviting his hearers into precisely that kind of experience, which is to say we find Jesus inviting his hearers to be completely engaged by a sense of purpose so grand that they cannot lay it aside. And what is this grand sense of purpose that Jesus places before his hearers and by extension, us? What is this grand sense of purpose? Simply this, paraphrasing Jesus' words, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And I invite you today to allow the starkness of that imagery to take up residence in your reflective thought for just a few moments. Perhaps even personalize these words. Imagine Jesus speaking them directly to you. You were the salt of the earth. You were the light of the world. You might not feel like it today, but you were the salt of the earth and you were the light of the world. If salt loses its saltiness, Jesus goes on to say, what good is it? Here's my way of translating that. Go ahead and become flavorful salt for my sake. Bring 
robust flavor to a world that so often is dangerously close to losing its spiritual seasoning. And concerning light, well, Jesus says nobody attempts to hide light. Nobody attempts to prevent light from, light from doing what it can do. My translation, go ahead and shine brightly for my sake. Illuminate what is good and true in a world that gravitates toward what is murky and distorted. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, sometimes the difficulty for us moderns is that there is such significant chronological space between where we live and the time of the scripture's writing that it's not uncommon for biblical imagery to lose its urgency and its uh, nuance. Case in point, if we desire salt, that normally requires a little more for us than reaching across the table. And whenever we desire light, that requires a little more than maybe the sweeping across the screen of an iPhone or the flip of a switch. But I'm asking you to allow yourself to be chronologically relocated for just a few moments to a time when salt was often how Roman soldiers would be paid, which by the way is precisely why the Latin word for salt has its roots in the Latin word for salary and vice versa. There was a time in history when salt as a preservative and a flavoring was looked upon as being precious enough to serve as the foundation of a soldier's compensation. And light, well, I guess all that I need to say about that is that if someone were lost in the first century desert, the sight of even a small light in the distance could mean the difference between life and death. Jesus, you see, was utilizing imagery that communicated urgency and impact. It's important to understand that. Do you really want to be my followers? Jesus seems to be saying to this group of listeners who had wandered into the desert and all of whom were living under a Roman rule that I would suspect had come to feel dark and flavorless. Do you really want to be my followers? Then go ahead and step into this new reality that I'm incarnating. Become spiritual salt and light for my sake so that the people around you might begin to taste and see the goodness of God's reign through you. Do you really want to be my followers, Jesus seems to be saying, to those hearers and to us? Well then, allow your worldview to be so thoroughly reconfigured by the things that God believes are important that you begin to make every place you go more flavorful with the savoriness of God's love. And you begin to make every circumstance a little bit brighter with the light of God's priorities. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let that become your grand purpose. Here's what I think that looks like in real time. And by the way, everything that I share with you, I share with permission. At a small coffee shop long before sunrise, I sat across the table from the chief financial officer of a company in Pittsburgh who had asked to meet with me. And with tears in his eyes, he spoke into the quietness of those moments with an urgency that communicated to me uh, the desperation of his temperament. Yesterday afternoon, he said to me that morning, during a long meeting in a corporate office, I looked into the tired faces of my colleagues 
And Eric, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I have become completely uninterested in their lives. Don't get me wrong, he said, I'm relentlessly interested in their performance and in their productivity because that's what my work demands. But somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, he said, I've lost the capacity to care about their hurts and their hopes and their frustrating, weird idiosyncrasies that make them who they are. And if that's the case, he went on to say, if I've stopped caring about the personhood of the people with whom I work, what kind of impact am I, ha what kind of impact am I having on that workplace, on that company? And furthermore, he said, tearing up again, how can I with integrity describe myself as a follower of a Jesus who makes it very clear that I'm to treat even the least human being as though that person were Jesus himself. And it was one of those moments, friends, when I was practically intimidated by the gravity of what he was sharing. Didn't know quite what to say in response. I remember asking him if he had any sort of vision for how he might be able to make the circumstances different. And the fact that he responded to me with a string of profanities led me to believe that I could have asked a much better question in the moment. I don't have a vision, he said. That's why I'm talking to you. I don't have a vision. All I can tell you, he said, and this was his exact language, all I can tell you is that I want to go to work with a different kind of emotional intelligence. I want to go to work with a different kind of relational availability so that no one I encounter that day will walk away from me feeling undervalued, unseen. And I remember going home from that coffee shop and writing down in the journal that I was keeping everything that I could remember about that conversation because I did not want to forget it. And whenever I would see that individual on Sunday morning, I knew that I was looking into the countenance of somebody who was meaningfully struggling with what it means to be salt and light so that even a corporate office can reflect the priorities of God. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. A ninth grader in a church that I once served, sickened and angered by recent acts of violence against two of her friends, both of whom were gay, single-handedly launched and initiated what um, she described as an anti-bullying, anti-homophobia campaign in her public high school. And it was interesting to see many of the teachers and many of the school administrators coming alongside her because I think they sensed this ninth, this ninth grader was leading in a way that they were not. And when asked by a local television reporter about her motivation, this 15-year-old ninth grader responded with this. Look, she said, I don't mean to get all preachy about it. I really don't, but you have to understand it's kind of a Jesus thing for me. What do you mean it's kind of a Jesus thing? What I mean, she said, is that I think Jesus always makes a beeline for the bullied and the marginalized. And if that's where Jesus is standing, hey, that's where I wanna to stand too. And the reporter smiled with this weird sort of smile as though maybe somewhere in the depths of her soul, she understood that she was in the presence of, I don't know, salt and light. A lay person in a small United Methodist congregation launched a new small group just this last year for the purpose of reading a book in community. And the book that that group of uh, churchgoers read together was entitled this, 
white too long, the legacy of white supremacy in the American church, written by scholar Robert P. Jones. And when the news began to circulate in that uh, small congregation about this small group and that book in particular, there was immediate pushback and it was something fierce. That's too political. That's too divisive for our church. It's too woke. It's too controversial. But what I love is that this, is that this lay person remained committed in the work. I can live with the pushback, she said to me in a recent email. I can live with the pushback. What I can't live with, she said, is a continuing racism that is preventing the church of Jesus Christ from being the church that Jesus is calling it to be. Salt, light. And by the way, friends, doesn't this sound like the church at its best to you? A group of people so inwardly transformed by the love of Jesus that they begin to make every restaurant that they visit, every store that they enter, every conversation that they experience brighter and more flavorful. Not because of their moral superiority, because let's be honest, we don't have that to offer. Not because of their moral superiority, but because they can't prevent themselves from being salt and light for the sake of the one they follow. Huh. That's the church. For 35 years, Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman has walked alongside this great congregation as its senior pastor. And what a journey it has been. Stephen's ministry is part of the sacred ground. His legacy is part of the sacred ground upon which all of us stand, including this pastor. Today, we enter into a new season with new senior pastoral leadership and new possibilities, all the while struggling with this question. What will it mean? What will it mean for Christ Church, New York City to recontextualize the gospel of Jesus Christ for a postmodern, post-pandemic population, a substantial portion of which has come to look upon the church as a racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, hypocritical hangout for weekend religionists. Which is to say, what will it mean for Christchurch, New York City in this new season to become a salt and light community for the sake of New York City and beyond? And in my own egotism, I long to be able to stand here and give you a detailed answer to that question. I really do. I'd love to be able to do that. But the truth is, I'm not exactly certain of what that's going to mean. That's part of the fun of what we get to find out together. But I am absolutely convinced of at least this much, that the starting point in that will be allowing ourselves to be deconstructed and reconstructed by the love and the grace and the priorities of Jesus so that becoming his spiritual salt and light in our little corner of the world, wherever that might be, becomes our foundational purpose, as natural to us as breathing and every bit as urgent. Christ Church, New York City, hear this. You are the salt of the earth because of Jesus. You are the light of the world 
and I am so grateful to be your pastor. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.